Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with the ECS DNA kit by Endocana Health. If you take pride in your canna nerdiness or are just canna curious, this kit empowers you to find more about the best cannabis choices. Right now, you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com using promo code POD25. Your purchase includes the Endo DNA Collection Kit, Endo Decoded Report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestions, and Endo Align products matching in your state. There will also be suggested dosage guidelines and optimum methods for inhalation or usage. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a buy one, get one offer on their Afika soft gel lineup. And since I know that many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afika Unwind, created to support health sleep cycles using patented proprietary formulations of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are in your future. Buy one for yourself and get one for a friend at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at the checkout for 25% off your DNA test kit. We asked about what Kemp's mission is. The movement is not an entity. It's a living, breathing thing. It's a call to action to educate, advocate, and demonstrate our belief system, which is rooted in scientific fact that cannabis is a core solution to achieving health equity. This is The Cannamom Show, a podcast chronicling the inspiring stories of real women in the emerging cannabis industry. Your host, Joyce Gerber, mom, lawyer, political activist, has been speaking with women from coast to coast and around the world who are leaders in the revolution of cannabis and caregiving, continuing on her mission to lift up the stories of the women creating the cannabis industry by sharing their canna stories with you. So go make yourself a cup of tea or roll yourself a joint, sit back and learn something new about this magical plant on The Cannamom Show with Joyce Gerber. From the Tip O'Neill Studios in North Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Canna Mom Show. Now here's your host, Joyce Gerber. Welcome back. I am Joyce Gerber, and we are the Canna Mom Show, talking about caring for and giving voice to women in the emerging cannabis industry. So, Dave, how was your weekend? It was actually nice out. Yeah, I didn't get out that much. <laughs> Dave just lives in his studio. He never leaves. <laughs> Living my podcast bunker, editing podcasts. No, it was Nobody has to do it. Yes. No, it was a nice weekend. How about yourself? Did you get outside? I, I took I, I took the train into Boston, which is a little freaky. Wow. And I saw I saw a play in a real theater. What play did you say? Uh, what the Constitution means to me. <laughs> That's very on brand for you. I know it is Cha- champion of of liberty and justice. Was it good? It was amazing. It was a one woman show, and it was really. A, oh, uh, you were telling me about this on a previous yeah, check, episode. Yeah, they, they handed out a Constitution at the end of the show, which I've been carrying around with me. That's cool. <laughs> You never know when it might come in handy, you know? Yeah, it could. In these day and ages, they just whip it out. There it is. Right. And it, I had a whole I've... discussion with my my sister about affirmative rights and negative rights after this because she'd never heard that before. And it like was kind of mind blowing to her. So, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> all right. Well, I want a full recap at some other point. But if you get pulled over by a cop, that constitution might come in handy. and Or or then again, maybe it won't. <laughs> I joined in one hand, a constitution in the other. I'm ready. <laughs> That's right. 
Civil liberties at its finest. Yeah. All right. I'm still keeping in the lawyer mode. I just wanted to give a shout out to the Canna Law Summit, which is happening in New York, uh, May 3rd to the 5th. I'm going to be attending virtually and I'm not doing law stuff, but I'm looking forward to hearing what's been happening over the past couple of years because I haven't really been covering it that much. Um, I'm never planning on practicing again. You, Dave, what do you think? No, uh, <laughs> I'm just about at, with every step in my career, I step a little farther away from the law. No offense. I still have a love for it, but now nah, I'm good. <laughs> we can talk about it. And just one other thing. So have you heard the story about the WNBA basketball player, Brittany Griner? That sounds familiar, but what, what so she, specifically? So she was accused of carrying, quote, hashish oil into Russia and oh, yes. detained. Yes, I heard that. And she could it, she could be essentially a hostage, which is very scary. But I don't. Very, so is she yeah. still she's still locked up or held there for the she's moment? Still, she's still there. And this is something we talk about. I mean, I don't oh, know if boy. it's trumped up. I don't know if she's actually using cannabis for health and wellness. I don't know why they would, I don't even know what the logistics, but you know, whenever somebody gets arrested for this, we talk about this because it's, we forget it's so normalized here, sort of in our little world. And this is a really scary thing that's happening to her for, I'm sure many multiple reasons, but it's been playing out. I've seen it a couple of, it's, 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 it's had legs. I've seen like three or four coverage of it. So I think they're holding her as a, a pawn maybe, I don't know, but it does have cannabis. That's yeah. And that's, will be such a shame if it gets any worse, but we will follow the story on the Cannabis Show as it develops. Because it's uh, women, cannabis, oil, health, wellness, and Russia, all so topical mm -hmm. of the world. And there's one more thing from my listeners. So anyone out there who is thinking, who has issues or thinking about safely storing your cannabis products, I know this is an issue for moms. I have a loyal listener who's trying to do some surveys on it. So I have some links in my newsletter. I'll put it at the end of the show notes if you want to connect with this person who's doing some research on storing your cannabis safely. And you want to give some information that you have to her. All right. That's all I got. What do you got? Anything else, Dave? No, uh, I'm just, I'm looking to see if, if during the course of the episode, anything develops with this Brittany Griner situation, I'll update you. But she's, she, <laughs> she is still being held in a Russian jail. And it's, it's been going on for a while. So I'm glad people are paying attention. And just one more thing from our guests today are amazing. So I'm excited to get to them. And I want to thank Fortuna Design for making today's show possible. So today. Today, we have the founders of the Cannabis Health Equity Movement, CHEM, who are a cannabinoid medicine specialist and a global cannabis advocate. Dr. Rachel Knox is a certified cannabinoid medicine specialist who received her medical and business degrees from Tufts University right here in Massachusetts, <laughs> up the street, after completing her undergraduate degrees at Duke. She trained in family and integrative medicines before pursuing additional studies in the area of functional medicine, cannabinoid medicine, and endocannabinology, which I hope I said correctly. Dashita Dawson is the Weedhead, a global cannabis advocate, award-winning strategist, and best-selling author of How to Succeed in Cannabis Industry. She has 20 years of business development and strategic management excellence while leading teams for United Way, Target, and Victoria's Secret. Dashita is also the Portland Cannabis Manager, overseeing all regulatory licensing, compliance, and equity initiatives for the city's legal industry. Together, they are a force to be reckoned with in the cannabis industry. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I'm honored that they are today's guest. Please welcome Dr. Rachel Knox and Dashita Dawson. Welcome, ladies. Hey. Okay, so let's just start with Dr. Knox. Just just get a quick intro. You're in Portland right now. And I'm just, how did you guys meet? Actually at a cannabis science conference. Okay. 
Yeah, here here in Oregon, where I'm born and raised. And uh, yeah, Dashita, you tell the story better, so I'm gonna let you do it. Okay. My goodness. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's because I was a fangirl that day. Dr. Rachel Knox and her family of doctors, Dr. David, Dr. Janice, and Dr. Jessica, are really the inspiration for me to come out of the closet as a cannabis consumer uh, way, way back, I feel like now, <laughs> in 2016. And, you know, I was really excited to get the opportunity to hear them speak at the Cannabis Science Conference in Portland. So we met in 2017. I feel like I did a little flight stalking throughout the day to make sure that we had a conversation. And of course, we talked about cannabis science and all of those things, but we also had a real conversation about the autoimmune issues that I was dealing with. You know, being into the industry as a patient first, I was still not seeing a full amount of success as maybe I thought now that I was in a legal market. And Dr. Rachel gave me some great insight about diet and some of the other things that were impacting my endocannabinoid system and my overall health. And I made you know, subtle changes over time that have now become what seem extreme compared to now versus 2017. But that conversation really sparked a change for me on how I was taking care of myself. And I've definitely been healthier ever since. And I love that conversation because at some point during, she jokingly said that I should move to Portland. And she said it so excitingly too, like it was real. And I, I felt that energy. And normally I think my first response would have been as a New Yorker, no, thank you. But mm -hmm. I actually was like, in my mind, say less. And here we are uh, now doing some amazing things in, in Portland. So that's I great. That, that, that's energy connecting right there. It that's, is. That's like, amazing. We have to mention, right? So I, I, I chaired our Oregon Cannabis Commission for several years. And as chair, my co-chair and I developed a several subcommittees. One of those subcommittees was a subcommittee on, on governance. We were, gonna, we were working through how Oregon's cannabis laws need, needed to reform really to, to maintain and, and preserve a space for medical patients. And, and so, you know, I, I recruited Dashita onto that committee and then lo and behold, a couple of years later, she, you know, becomes the SAR of the city of Portland's cannabis program. And, you know, I'm working within her office in the cannabis policy oversight team. So we were already crossing over, you know, playing this inside outside game, as she likes to say, well, well before we founded Chem together. All right. So let's just like goes right into that. So just tell me what the cannabis health equity movement, just tell me how it was founded and what the mission is, I suppose. Maybe just start simple. <laughs> yeah. So the, the cannabis health equity movement was my, my brainchild. I, I was the, Which I the actually, it's so brilliant. I just, I say this all, I actually quote you a lot because I heard, I'd never heard anyone talk about this it. as a vehicle for health equity. I just, it, it clicked. There was something about the way you it talked about it. It clicks, right? Right. So, you know, I'm a medical doctor. Um, trained in primary care and functional medicine. So I'm always looking at the root, right? The root cause of a problem, right? If we really want to heal, if we really want to fix things, we can't just band-aid it at right conventional medicine. We can't put a, a band-aid on everybody and send them home and expect them to be well and let alone, you know, flourish, right? And so Back in 2019, I was the chair of the medical committee for an organization called Minority Cannabis Business Association. And, you know, one of one of their tenets was patient education. But I was struggling as the chair with a pretty, you know, enthusiastic subcommittee with not just the organization, but I think the industries 
mis like fundamental misunderstanding of the the role that cannabis has always played in people's health and health beyond our our mental and physical state, but social health as well. And so I challenged the subcommittee to come up with, you know, our 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 understanding of the the term health equity. Uh, as juxtaposed to social equity. And it was it was a wonderful exercise. And what I recognize is that health equity is so much bigger than social equity. And that little container of a, of a set of a committee was not, you know, was not sufficient to support that idea. And so I was tinkering with like what 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 to call this move into this health equity space. And I was like, cannabis health equity movement, because it's a movement. We got to get people galvanized behind this new thing, health equity. And I thought it was cute because, you know, the acronym spells chem, which is short for chemistry, which is also sort of a, you know, a, an homage, if we will, to what has really brought us here, right? The scientific discovery of the cannabinoids, which led to the re revelation of this endocannabinoid system in our bodies. And so, yeah, I thought it was cute at the time, ran it by my sis and she was just like, yeah, run with it. And so I started having just little meetups with the people I was closest to in the industry who, you know, already sort of got it. Dashita being one of those folks and Dashita more than everybody, I think it clicked the most. And Dashita, I'll let you speak for yourself, but it was like, 180 degree pivot once Tashita got involved and, and brought her strategic cap into the conversation to really help build chem and, and, and the actual entities under chem to the state that they are today. That's it. So, Tashita, so what was it, Tashita, that what was it that clicked with you? I mean, some, the, the word somehow it just it made sense to me in my head, but what was it that clicked with you and what did you add? What was your value add to make this become a reality? Well, I think the immediate thing that clicked, as I said before, we met under the premise of me as a patient myself. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think I'm looking for total health and well-being. I've been, you know, struggling with early uh, signs of MS for over a decade and really um, finding it challenging in so many different spaces, whether um, it's in the policies set aside, in the healthcare system, the you know the conventional, even where I'm living and how I'm living with getting it. So I think uh, getting to a uh, health equity that is total and it's and it's actually my best well-being. And so I started to think about it mostly for myself initially, but then it became very clear that there was a lack of really understanding this, both public sector as well as private sector. The work that I've been doing for the last um, six years from a strategy and management consulting perspective, it clicked um, having supported Native American tribes and municipalities before I became uh, a lead regulator for the city of Portland. It started to be clear that there was a clear strategy where we could be complexly integrated, leveraging all of our expertise to demonstrate the ways that cannabis can be used as a tool uh, towards driving health equity and that this could be a real rubric that we could apply to many different situations. But first and foremost, starting with the government being the utmost sort of social equity agent or uh, you know social justice agent for us, really acting and ensuring that the laws and the policy and the regulations really truly are um, equitable and cheap. That's that era is about. That, I mean, that's it. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So again, let me just kind of, really I could talk about this. I could literally talk about this subject forever. So, um, <laughs> so Dashita, you're in, obviously you're doing the business part or where you are in the talking about government. I like municipal law. I am a lawyer by training, um, you know, 
private isn't always better than public and we need to have good policy. That's, you know, Ayanna Presley is my representative policy is her love letter or something. I mean, she loves policy. <laughs> but again, with cannabis, who's whispering in the eyes, ears of the politicians, who's listening and what are they deciding? Is it business? Is it medical? I know we're so afraid that the me- what's going to happen to medical if big money comes in. So I don't know, you are the weed head. You're kind of combining all these different things together. Plus you're in philanthropic and media. So you're seeing this from a lot of different angles and now you're in the health and wellness. So I don't know, what do you see is the, the drive? I don't know, what's your biggest path? You seem to be on all sides of it. So what do you think is the biggest driver? I talk about policy a lot though. Yeah. You know, right now policy is largely driven from fear and what I yeah. call full science. And so we're trying to undo that in a large part of camp <laughs> and our mission how do we undo that? And we have to infiltrate multiple spaces. I am at a weird intersection, not a weird, a unique one. You're unique. <laughs> yes, it's purposeful. Yeah. It's purposeful. Well, it, it's, bringing, it's bringing a different voice. You know, I do only talk to women in the industry. So when I talk to, I go to groups and there's a lot of men there. My joke is I'm like, oh my God, there are men here too. But it, <laughs> it's still being driven by their narratives. Again, I hope this is going to be a new industry. It's a new way to do business. If caregivers could lead the way and we could develop it in her image, that's my mantra lately. So you're doing that too. I mean, you're literally, what's your, your title is the cannabis program manager for the city of Portland. Is that yeah. what you're actually doing? Yeah. It's one of the hats that I wear, but yes, the, their image licensing compliance. So there are almost 400 licenses in our jurisdiction that we oversee, but also in charge of education equity initiative, we have a cannabis tax revenue allocation that we ensure goes back into the community. But even though this law was in place before I took the role, 80% of this local cannabis tax revenue was still going to public safety or the police bureau. So what we show and what we're demonstrating in some ways is that if we don't have the same mindset or due north, like this goal of total health equity and understanding where it needs to be prioritized as a result of cannabis criminalization, we, we don't always even see insensible policies, the right implementation of them. But I also think at the same time, while I'm blessed to work within a sensible uh, regulatory framework within the uh, city of Portland, I do, and Kim has been doing a lot of work across the country where we are recognizing that we are creating inequitable frameworks, but then we want social equity programs, in quotes, to be rider-long programs to help uh, alleviate some of those inequities. And I think we have to start back from the policy and from the beginning mm-hmm. having conversations mm-hmm. about how do we make it equitable. Band-aids do yeah. not heal. And again, like, so I, I live in Boston. I used to work in housing, so I could see how policy, we talk about policy. Policy literally created our city. We literally, de- we literally segregated our city with government policy. I mean, the- <laughs> It was, it was was intentional and that's how it looks. And the repercussions of it are obviously generational. So I know I'm, you know, this is very local. This cannabis is so local. It's so local specific. And in our own communities here in Boston, trying to get the social equity programs running, we can see where the, we can already see where the flaws are because this isn't just one shop. This isn't just one person. It isn't just giving them a little bit leg up. It's how do we change the structure? Like, and a lot of it has to do with capital. I, I mean, at this point, it's almost all capital, which is why we need some government intervention to kind of equitably figure out how this is and figure out why it's so expensive to apply and all the other things that make it so inequitable to begin with. And I worry about the gap. So what are you doing? What are you like housing, affordable healthcare, all of it's all together, right? Yeah. Real real quick, right? I don't, I I think capital, I think if we start with the capital, we're starting too late. We we have to begin with our thought processes. Mm, Yeah. Right. The the rhetoric that we have long used, we have to do a lot of we have to undo 
mm. a lot, right? So you asked about, you know, what, what, what Kem's mission is, right? It's, it's a movement, right? The movement is not an entity. It's, it's a living, breathing thing. It's, we say it's a call to action to educate, advocate, and demonstrate our belief system, which is rooted in this, right, scientific fact that cannabis is a core solution to achieving health equity. We define health equity as the assuredness of access to full health and well-being for all people and for the healing of the earth, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, cannabis and its 50,000 and counting unique innovations across agriculture and industry and medicine and nutrition, we know, right, can, can be that thing that addresses social disparity and medical disparity and all the other types of disparity, housing disparities, as you say, even. Mm -hmm. But it's, we have to agree that in that understanding that cannabis is that unique tool and that its innovations can be applied against, you know, our, our five, 10, 20 year, you know, sustainability plans, housing plans, economic development plans. And in that agreement, we have to recognize, like Dashita said, that it's our policies and thereby those policies are regulations, thereby those regulations, our institutional practices need to get us on track. Mm -hmm. right, to tracking towards those 5, 10, 20, 50, 100-year goals from now. And that's the problem, right? If we, if, we start with, if we start with the capital, but we have a flawed fundamental understanding of the purpose and prowess of this plant, we're going to continue to fail. Mm -hmm. that, that is the problem with erecting inequitable cannabis regu regulatory frameworks, creating a social equity program on the side, right? As this, yeah, as this writer, that's wholly insufficient because it is actually, you know, an, 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 an addendum to an infrastructure that by definition is set up to create disparity. All right. So again, I, I see this from a local level at Massachusetts. I see mm -hmm. it across the state. I feel like I, I, I agree with you where they treat cannabis like plutonium. It's like no other business in the world. We do things that no one else would have to do. Our businesses are, it's hard to function. And doctors, I want to talk about the medical field too, about who and who doesn't agree with using this cannabis for health and wellness. It's, there's so many things kind of tied up with it. So can you give me some specifics? Something you're talking about maybe in Portland that's being, again, we've never had policy implemented like this at a federal level, completely illegal in each state and locality is kind of off on their own world doing whatever they want. So what are you seeing maybe specifically in Portland that you think is hopeful that's maybe spreading or can you see policy people changing their minds? They're less afraid of this. Uh, I don't know what you're seeing out there. I think for, first of all, anytime we have a market that has caps, it, we're already going to have a difficulty. So Portland being in a state that doesn't really cap the market in an artificial way, it doesn't mean that they aren't discussing moratoriums and how to, again, go with the ebbs and flows of demand. That's important. And so I think that that's been a, a real help for- um, I've heard that's the, smart. I've heard that, yeah. 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 But I also think the fees, you know, when we have, why is there so much capital required? It's because the regulation, it's because of the, the government. The government is imposing a certain level. So we need parity. And, and that is something that Portland has started to understand. We launched our first cannabis emergency relief fund. Most cannabis companies did not receive relief during the COVID time period. This is just an example of the lack of parity, the expectation that you're going to be um, taxed out the wazoo, which you have taxation without the real representation on the other aspects that government helps to support during 
times that we need it, like a pandemic. So I think parity is missing across the board, but it's also because we're not fundamentally agreeing that cannabis is inherently medicinal, regardless of whether we call it a medical market or adult use market. We're regulating use when we can't actually do that. Scientifically, we can't do that. And I think that there's a lot of non-scientific policy that has bifurcated the hemp market from the high THC market. And that result is limiting the growth of the overall business opportunities in the market. And eventually what's going to happen is we'll have a lot of Californias where you still see the legacy market or the unregulated market outpacing the newly created legal market. And we're, we're not going to see the, the, the growth that analysts keep projecting. And then eventually the government will say, maybe we need to, we ratcheted this up too much and we need to back it down. But it's, it's in ebbs and flows. People are already calling Oklahoma a failure and we have governor who wants to create new criminalized structure around a now legal market. And so I feel like we're backsliding a bit and we need to kind of keep the fight to push forward and recognize that there's a plant that we can grow at home, to be honest, and don't need it to be regulated in this way. And if we if we understand that that's an equity driven conversation from the beginning, maybe our regulations and policies will reflect that. That's an excellent point, actually. Actually, can I go back up? So you talked about the Cannabis Emergency Relief Fund. Was that through Portland? What was that? Yes. So and and through uh, work like Dr. Rachel, she's a member of our cannabis policy oversight team. They recommended and went to council talking about the lack of parity in terms of emergency relief. When we were under a triple emergency, it was COVID. We also had wildfires across the whole West Coast that impacted the supply chain, as well as these robberies that have now increased over the last, you know, two years. So all of that happening, but no emergency relief. Meanwhile, we have a cannabis tax revenue that is growing at the state and at the local level. And so we petitioned to have at the local level an allocation that would allow for cannabis emergency relief to be given to cannabis businesses. So it's the state or the city, the jurisdiction taking care of it's, you know, meat and potatoes for that cannabis tax revenue. It feels like just the fiscally responsible thing to do as a businesswoman. You can't, you know, get a car to move from point A to point B without putting gas in it. And, and, and these, you know, licensed businesses are running out of gas. And as a result, the ecosystem around them also running out of gas, the ancillary businesses. So it's a rippling impact. And we're excited that we're the first jurisdiction in the country to use cannabis tax revenue in this way. Smart. I'm impressed. All right. I'm in Massachusetts. It was, you know, obviously we had it here. <laughs> the whole pandemic, it was, it was deemed essential, but yeah. <laughs> and they did change the rules a lot. I do talk about that. They changed the rules a lot as soon as like the pandemic you know, you have to go through two loads of security and the whole, whole deal. And then after pandemic, you order it online and they throw it in your car. And I'm like, see, it's fine. fine. <laughs> um, anyways, let's go back to doctors because I do talk about, um, I mean, physicians. I, doctors talk to doctors, physicians talk to physicians, whether or not they're going to believe this. I'm, you know, I talk to almost exclusively women who appealed themselves or their children using cannabis. And it's a very mixed experience for their medical professionals, whether or not they're not almost not that they're not helping them, but whether they'll even listen to them at some level. So can you just talk about what you're doing with your fellow physicians, I guess? I guess you're a whole family. And <laughs> endocannabinology, did I say that correctly? Can you just yeah, uh, make- you did. You nailed it. You nailed it. You know, Dasheed and I are like, we're, we lead with lexicon. And gosh, I think it was with 2018. I was at a, you know, MJ for MDs conference in Denver, Colorado. And it was, 
it was the first time I was on a stage looking out at a room full of MDs and DOs and NDs and, you know, other like traditional healers, chiropractic, et cetera. And told all of them, you are not cannabis doctors. We're not botanists. Right. We don't care for the plant. We care for human beings. Human beings have endocannabinoid systems like they have cardiovascular systems and, you know, neurological systems and reproductive systems. Right. And, and doctors of those systems we call cardiologists or endocrinologists or neurologists. So, no, we are endocannabinologists. We practice cannabinoid medicine, which is the application of cannabinology, right? The, the understanding of the pharmacology of this plant and its interaction in the body, principally on the endocannabinoid system, more broadly on the endocannabinoid dome. And as clinicians, our role is to help restore health, right? So we, we apply our tools like cannabis in order to modulate this endocannabinoid system, right? The root of balance and homeostasis in our, our bodies. So we're endocannabinologists. That, you know, I think that's a process that's very destigmatizing. Right. We, we, we separate the doctor from this notion of being a pot doc. Mm -hmm. uh, and but it's but it's the reality. Like the reality is you, you are not a doctor of the plant. You're a doctor of a human being. This is a tool that just so happens to work on this system in pretty incredible ways. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about all these ways this plant does seem to work or does not work. And it's and its constituents. And. You know, have more intellectual conversations about that. And I will tell you, when we frame the conversation that way, we see we see the stigma begin to erode. And we see our colleagues more open to having the conversation because I will tell you, I, I, it is a problem that our, our medical boards and our medical associations are not recognizing the harm that they're doing, not just to patients, but to us as clinicians. It is our job to keep up with emerging science. It is our job to understand fundamentally pharmacology. It's our job to understand fundamentally physiology. And when we have states legalizing at the rate that they are and people, more, more people consuming this plant, it's our job. I call it our due diligence to mm -hmm. understand the interaction of this plant in the body so that if patients come to our emergency departments or our primary care clinics or our OR suites, our anesthesiologists and our first responders understand what to do when somebody has consumed cannabis. It is, it is, there's, um, there's no room for religiosity, right? No, and and it's, it's, not a, it's not a belief system, people. It's a science. It's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and again, like, Usually when I, when I lead the conversation that way, there's, there's no rebuttal. <laughs> no, I love that. Cause I do, I do say the word endocannabinoid system all the time. And I forget that people don't know what I'm talking about. So they think I I'm know, making it up yeah. so that I could say this an endocannabinology or an endocannabinologist. And again, we're talking about the whole body. For 30 years post-discovery, the endocannabinoid system is still not being taught in our, our medical you know, curricula. The, the most common excuse that we've heard is that there's no room for it. Could you imagine them saying there's no room for uh, cardiology? <laughs> there's, there's no room for lectures on the nervous system. They would never say that. Wow. Right? I, I will say my, my niece just, she's a nurse. She graduated from Yale actually four years ago. And I asked her, I'm like, anyone say anything? Anyone? Anyone? She's like one class. Somebody mentioned it. It was like nutrition. I had four hours of it. And food, food is like the building block <laughs> of ourselves, right? It's just, 
It's absurd. It's absurd. But we know that our, our conventional medical systems are also run by big capital interests. And we have to be honest with, you know, honest about that. That is that is the reality. It's super unfortunate that medical professionals don't know our own history, right? That cannabis was a part of the U.S. pharmacopoeia from 1850 to 1942. It was one of the top three medicines prescribed. Our pharmaceutical companies you know, developed cannabis, cannabis medicines, Pfizer, which is Park Davis, Eli Lilly. We don't know this stuff. And, and that's a shame. But again, when we, when we teach that history, we change the stories. It's the stories. And, and they're very it's personal. Like the, the micro macro. Again, I say that's what the podcast is powerful. People are seeing this at a very micro level. They're healing themselves. They're seeing people they know. And it opens up that space. And it's so yeah. important because physicians have to talk to each other or it's not going to change. I just uh, we need help. You know, we. Uh, we don't, I don't know anything about my body. I, I could talk smart about cannabis for 30 seconds about on any topic, but the body is complicated. And when my mother, trying to get my mother to use this or consumer to use CBD integrated, I hired um, a friend of mine who's a cannabis nurse. And of all the medical professionals working with her, my medical friend, the cannabis nurse was the only person to t- question her medications and to help titrate her down. Yeah. And it was just, it was just stunning. So this whole body idea, you know, I'm a very Western medicine girl. I say this all the time, you know, play tennis. I wear pearls. I believed all this and I didn't even know <laughs> what cannabis was, you know, and now I know that women my age and older, we can use it the most. This is really important. We know the least about it and we don't have to feel bad. I, I yeah. just have this sense that for so long, my friends and I just assumed we had to just feel bad all the time and we just had to drink our way through it. You know, the, the last thing I'll say about that, like what, what am I saying here? I, I, I had a I had a candid conversation with members of the Oregon Medical Board one day and that was what, what I said. Like it is, it is actually your job, Medical Board, to make sure that we, your licensees, who, who you're protecting the public from, that's that's the medical board's role right? to protect the public from us you're doing those folks a disservice by not ensuring that we are properly educated right i had to take 12 hours of of continuing education on opioid harm reduction as a condition for license renewal so why that. we require <laughs> it especially in cannabis states right to understand cannabis, you know, in its pharmacology. And they were spent, they couldn't answer that question. But what's really unfortunate is, and I'm sure this is, uh, this is happening in other states too, but Oregon, one of the oldest legal states, our medical boards are still persecuting. Our nursing boards are still persecuting clinicians who are having conversations about cannabis with patients, clinicians who are evaluating and making, you know, recommendations for an authorization, it's still happening. And so we have to recognize that, that, that doctors are sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place too, even those of us who I think are on the right side of history. And we can't just advocate for patients. We have to ad- advocate for institutional policy reforms too that are going to liberate healthcare professionals so that we can be in, in better service and in best service uh, to our, our clients and our patients. And again, yep. women leaders coming up, they have a different idea and they have power now. And we can talk about this. And if we don't talk about it and we don't push a new narrative, it's not going to change. So thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. But we do have to take a break. So we will be back with Dishita Dawson and Dr. Rachel Knox after a message from our sponsor, Fortuna Design. Today's sponsor, Fortuna Design, is on a mission to share your light because the world needs to hear your message is what founder and visionary Ashley Corrado wants you to know. We met on Clubhouse and I knew pretty quickly that she's someone I would be looking toward for marketing insight and so should you. 
Fortuna Design works with your business to use your data to inform future business decisions. Ashley and her team want you to know that marketing is not a four-letter word. And if you are a mission-driven cannabis business, please give Fortuna Design a call. Like everything else in cannabis, you need a specialized marketing team that is on top of the quickly evolving trends in the emerging cannabis industry. Fortuna Design employs data-driven creative design strategy and problem solving to help clients hone their online presence. Ashley and her team use data to drive their creative process. And right now, Ashley is offering a few special promotions just for the cannabis businesses. The first is for Canna content creation and another how to advertise in cannabis. If your company is ready to transition away from old school design and outdated tech, Fortuna Design might just be the firm for you. Check them out at Design Board Fortuna on social media and at their web website, fortunadesign.io. All right, we are back with our guests, Deshita Dawson and Dr. Rachel Knox. Let's talk about family. So let's see. Uh, Rachel, you're working with your family already, but Deshita, what did your family think of your cannabis transition? What happened when you were going through this? Was there any pushback or fear or happiness? What was it? Like, I work with my family also, off the counter included the Knoxes and the Dawsons on a meeting. So I'm in the business with my uh, two sisters. I actually have three sisters, but two of them are in the business. My older sister, Imani Dawson, is an award-winning um, producer and writer, and she has had her own communications and marketing agency for now over a decade, and it's been in critical conversations related to the policy and lobbying and support of the industry. And then Ice Dawson is the baby. And actually, she is the, the real sauce behind the boss, the secret sauce, she says, <laughs> because she's a project manager. She makes sure things done. But also, she's the creator of the She Blaze podcast, which I. All right. Her. Yes. So how, did, how do your parents feel? What were they thinking? Like all girls, all the girls went into this. <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, the catalyst for our joining the industry was the passing unexpectedly of our mom. And um, she is our parent. Everyone else um, had gone on, be, you know, before her, our grandparents who helped raise us. So it is our, like, we are the rising, like rising matriarchs in the family. I am the rising, you know, sort of, what do they call me? The godmother of the family, so to speak. We like to reference godfather a lot. But yeah, no, we we worked together purposely. We once I left corporate America, it was a very clear decision. I I don't want to say it wasn't pushed back initially. I mean, I'm leaving a very high paying six figure job in corporate America. I was um, essentially a VP level and. We headed to, you know, I think C-suite for large Fortune 500 companies. When I left, it was a real like of concern about just our collective generational wealth development and how we get to get along as a tribe. But so I think that was even more strategic for us to make this journey together, to bet on one, you know, health and wellness first and foremost. Everyone understood what I was dealing with, but we all started to realize how it could be used so strategically as women, even within um, the ranks of our children. My son is 18 now and being a can of mom has been my assistance for the last decade or some change and he's very very knowledgeable about cannabinoid medicine in general he's definitely knowledgeable about his own endocannabinoid system and as he dealt with panic attacks and depression and anxiety we've explored what is feasible primarily of the hemp derived cbd side of things for him but yeah we are a can of family 1000 percent 
I love that. I mean, I, I think it's so fascinating. The moms, the kids are smart. They know this stuff. They know. And I had a friend who was making a joke that, you know, when her kid got to be old enough, he was little to be offered something. He'd be like, well, what is it? What's the terpene profile? I, what's the, you know, <laughs> that's the TH content. I got a test later, you know? So that is, you know, and they would push back against the the dare stuff. Cause you know, there's a whole generation of people ruined by dare who, I mean, I do talk to women whose parents were using cannabis, you know, for usually veterans who were using it for their PTSD. And then they went to school and they were told these horrible, terrible things. And they were really scared. And often these young women were um, head of their DARE programs, which I find so funny. And now they're in the cannabis industry. So <laughs> that's a full circle. My mom did use cannabis as medicine and she wasn't very shy about it. She was also an educator, a principal of school. So oftentimes when we talk about the legacy market, particularly um, among black and brown communities, we're talking about people you would never suspect would actually be utilizing cannabis. It is sort of like your everyday leaders um, and community voices that are being, in some ways, I feel very much suppressed. My mother wasn't comfortable talking about it until she was suffering from cancer. And I think that's so sad. It's like you have to be dying to be talking about cannabis. And the fact of the matter is, no, actually it has some preventative capabilities and we're totally missing that opportunity. I wish I could use cannabis in high school. I was a, an elite athlete, uh, you know, I'm definitely very focused student. And now that I understand the full chemical profile and molecular structure of the plant, I utilize it to the fullest. And so I'm very serious as it pertains to the medicinal aspects of, of, of this plant. I mean, I do talk about this a lot. So when my kids were little, I was not, I wasn't really a cannabis consumer until they were teenagers, but I drank, but I understand now I could have been a better parent. I, mean, I was just so stressed out. So this is sort of this message that the normalization comes from transparency. You know, the moms who are in the bathroom or in the garage or whatever, and they're trying to get some relief so they can go spend some time with their kids, that um, set and setting. I mean, that's not a good set and setting. And your kids think you're doing something weird. And when it's transparent, they don't care. They're like, oh, that's mom's medicine. You know what I mean? It's a, so these, I just, it's generational, it's changing. So is that similar for you, Dr. Knox? Is that, were you raised with cannabis or? No, no, very, very different. You know, I'm sure, I, I think, you know, I was aware of a, a couple of occasions of medicinal use coming from somewhere in the house. But no, you know, my mom is a, is the daughter of a pastor, the fourth of 15 children, uh, uh, and if you're familiar with Pentecostal, which is a type of Baptist, which is a more, you know, strict form of Baptist, she was raised in a household that really convinced the children that many things, not the least of which being drug use, would send you straight to hell, right? Mm -hmm. And very ironically, my mom went to Cal Berkeley, claims she never saw or smelled Cannabis on campus. <laughs> and what year? That seems so unlikely. You believe her. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, when when it was at its height. Yeah. Anyway, more than likely, she'd get she'd be very upset if I shared her graduation year. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, went on to medical school, became an anesthesiologist. Right. Uh, had a number of colleagues be reprimanded or sent on probation for all sorts of drug use, cannabis included. So she had her own preconceived notions. She was approached, I don't know, maybe 2010 by a clinic in Portland asking for her to fill in at a clinic. And, you know, she didn't, she didn't dismiss it. She called my brother, who was a regular consumer and also an attorney in the cannabis space, in the medical cannabis space in California already. Okay. And he just, you know, centered her. You know, cannabis is legal in your state for, for, for medicinal you know, purposes. 
So why don't you just go and check it out? And my mom is a curious person. So she did. And Joyce, like you said, right, she was surprised to see that everyday people were in there for an evaluation and an authorization to use cannabis, you know, current professionals, retired professionals in law, in law enforcement, in medicine, people had their babies, you know, being strollered in. People were rolling in their grandparents in their wheelchairs. And she was taken aback and became even more curious and started studying, studying the science. You know, patients still expect us to know something. And I will tell you, when I first started in the clinic, these patients knew way more than me about oh, yeah. this. But, you know, my, I understood my role. And my role was to go learn so that I could be, you know, a, a better resource. Yeah. resource to these patients because they were still asking me, what do I use, right? There's still all these chemical profiles out there. What do I use for what? I have these specific conditions and I want my cannabis to be more effective. If I didn't do my homework, how could I be helpful, right? Um, so anyways, my, my mom led the rest of us docs into this space. My dad followed her. My sister and I were still in residency when this was happening. Oh, wow. Right. But we were in primary care settings. Caring for my parents, you know, improvements with their patients that we weren't seeing in our own clinics. Hmm. So we were curious too. And I guess the rest is history. But we as a family really felt as medical doctors, it was our duty to understand the, you know, the fundamentals of everything that I've explained. And in that process, I think we've, we've just been galvanized to be, to be advocates, which I think is unusual. I, I do have a gripe with most of our medical association cannabis because they're not involved in policy. And regulation and you know sitting in these clinics back when Oregon first went you know adult use and hearing the the plight of the patient their frustration their worry that what was going to happen to the medical program was going to happen and it sh certainly has that I felt like I needed to be an advocate I needed to be sitting at the tables where policy decisions were being made yeah you do I, again like you like you yeah. said all the women I talked to for the most part came to cannabis as a last resort they were desperate they were so desperate that they were trying to try anything which I think is so brave of these can of moms in theory but they shouldn't have to be desperate and they shouldn't be the last resort right so if you people like you if doctors are not talking about this to policymakers you know they can dismiss the mom or they can dismiss the they can dismiss a lot of things that they think are just I don't know they don't hear us or they don't see the moms or they think their moms are being hysterical or whatever they think. But if they hear it from physicians, if they hear it from, you know, policy leaders who really know what they're talking about, that changes, you know, politicians are followers. They're, they're listening to people. So we need smart people talking to them like you. Thank yeah. goodness. So, all right. So your family's all good with it. That's great. So 2022, I don't know. What do you think is the big thing going to happen in 2022? We're sort of into it already a third into it. Dashita, what do you think are the big things for, I don't know, Portland or national or federal or medical? Are we ever going to get this covered under Medicare, Medicare? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the conversation is certainly being had. It's happening at a state by state level. I think the biggest thing that I hope happens in 2022 is that we are getting better aligned to, uh, we were just talking about this earlier, Dr. Rachel, the evolving language of cannabis equity. If we don't get this language um, part correct, I think we're going to see more divergence and more confusion as we start to, you know, figure out from a policy side how things should move or, or work. I partly took this role because I'm a person that loves a proof of concept. I'm still a businesswoman at heart. And these are actually business units. The mm -hmm. intention is to drive revenue for the jurisdiction and as well create an ecosystem that licensed businesses are also driving revenue. 
And I think that overlooking the health professionals and the fact that this is inherently medicinal is the big, biggest mistake of all time. It's also, the, again, a lack of equity in its thinking, just thinking about patient equity. I have the privilege of being able to move from New York to Arizona to become a patient. But so many people as I travel are, especially after the COVID, are suffering in place. And so my hope is that we get to a more collective understanding about around health equity. And we've been going all over the place to, to actually talk about it. And I'm excited to continue to spread the message so that we can get better alignment. We should all be singing the same song as part of a chorus, lanes, whether you're alto or soprano, but actually singing the same song. And right now, Coast to coast, I feel like we are defining equity very um, mm -hmm. differently. It's being co-opted and contorted. It's even being declared a failure before we've even had an opportunity to really see it through. You know, social equity is something, as we define it, related to the policies and regulations, having fairness in them inherently, we've never actually seen in practice in America yet. I mean, that's and so when we mess up, it's we expect it. I like to think there was really an infant stages of it and we need we are. to realign on that communication. I don't think we'll see much movement at the federal level in the way of a real law passed, but I do think behind closed doors, trust and believe the work that Dr. Rachel and I are doing, both with CHEM and the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition, again, inside outside game, we're ensuring that all that education is being transferred over to these agencies. I want Dr. Rachel to talk about ACAM because again, Okay. The doctors coming to the table to say, hey, we need to actually be looking at this as medicine first is totally being left out of the conversation at the federal level. And after this year, we'll be able to say for sure, we told you and here's the proof and here are our papers and here's our testimony. And you ignored it like the Schaefer report. So we're repeating history. <laughs> We got a louder, we got, we got louder, bossy of voices out there telling them that they're wrong. So I don't know. Oh, all right. Dr. Rachel. What are you thinking, 2022? I have nothing to add to what she no. said, but I will. I will speak to Akem since she she asked me to. But so Chem Akem, they're not the same thing. Chem is the cannabis health equity movement under which we have some entities and enterprises. A Akem being one of them. It's just an A in front of Chem, but it stands for something different. It's the Association for Cannabis Health Equity and Medicine. So it is a medical association. It's oh, wow. a mutual benefit nonprofit that is that exists to do a few things. One is to increase the ranks of, of healthcare professionals and healers of color, right? In cannabinoid medicine. Um, you know, we we care about enrichment. We care, we care that healthcare professionals are knowledgeable in the science and the clinical application. And we we understand that racial concordance matters. We think we're gonna talk about cannabis as a medical right? A mental health or a physical health solution to communities of color. Well, we kind of need providers of color to care for them if we want them to have the best care. So we are increasing, we care about promoting these members. It's a mutual benefit organization. We want to make sure that these healthcare professionals have opportunity in this cannabis industry too. We care that they participate in policy design um, and implementation. So we've been very responsive to some of the federal bills that have come out, like the CAOA, we're currently developing our own model medical use program that we hope to, you know, parade around every state. Several of our members right now are involved in an Oregon initiative, which is a work group to draft a bill for 2023. Right now, full name TBD, but we're calling it the Cannabis and Healthcare Act. We're, we're trying to recenter 
you know, medicinal cannabis and medical use here in Oregon, just as an example of a way that we can, you know, prove that a medical use program can exist in an adult framework. And then last serve, right now, the, the members are working on pamphlets, right? Educational materials that they can take back into their communities to, to educate forward. So yeah, that's what, that's what ACAM is doing. We have, that's a, but that's five amazing. amazing women executive yeah. committee leaders in this organization. I just, again, so, you know, this is a little bit backwards. We don't usually like have criminal federal, federal policy and every state's making their own thing, but maybe this is how states are supposed to work. And you guys are actually out there in Oregon. You're trying to do something. It's like a, a test pilot, I guess, because we can see how every state is doing something very, very differently. So that's interesting. That's actually hopeful. I've been talking to women out here trying to get the pediatric cannabis medical. That's a whole nother niche of a niche that, you know, trying to make sure this doesn't yeah. get lost and that there's access and that doctors don't get in trouble. You know, that's it. Like it's, it's it, here in Oregon, it's the, it, it is the doctors who are evaluating children who are being persecuted the most. And what's really unfortunate is that these boards don't, they don't, they don't have a group of these doctors peers to properly evaluate them. And what I mean by that are that these folks who are really policing these doctors, they're not informed themselves. They're not knowledgeable about the science. They're actually not up to date on on the clinical trends, whether they're preclinical trials or clinical trials. And so, you know, they're admonishing these doctors who are evaluating and managing these patients without knowing a thing. And that is so harmful. The reality is cannabis is legal by way of hemp. <laughs> and pa parents are using hemp-derived, right, hemp extracts, hemp-derived cannabinoids, CBD in particular, to treat their children outside of medical management. You know, as just a harm reduction tool alone, it, right? Isn't it better to have some medical oversight of these children and support of these of these, you know, parents? Yep, um, it's it's quite remarkable. It is uh, remarkable, and you know, school nurses can hand out all sorts of medications to kids. <laughs> all sorts of medications, not to mention many of these prescription medications um, that do have permanent and deleterious effects on the developing brain. Right like so, proven and so it's it's so hypocritical cannabis well that's a whole nother that is literally a whole nother show so i, I mean I, I have been talking with a woman who's been working you know her child she's basically a refugee and she's a cannabis refugee here in massachusetts for her child and um it's very complicated and she feels like she's being advocating for a lot of things she can't she has to focus on really what the medical pediatric world is doing because it's going to get lost people aren't talking about it so everybody's going to do their part you know we're all butterfly wings yeah, but you guys yeah, get exactly. like big eagle wings or something all right so you guys are doing an awful lot i really loved having you today this was such a wonderful conversation what's the best way to get in touch with i guess dashita what's the best way for people to connect with you if they want to reach you well first of all you can always find me at the city of portland you know the emails and the in the phone numbers are all public record there as a cannabis program manager but personally you can find me on instagram or twitter at dashita dawson and weekly on the she blaze uh podcast we're coming back with season uh, six. Wow. And then I just recently started weekly on Serious Urban View on a flower to the people segment that I do every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern time. And so I'm, I'm trying to get the, the word out as much as possible through these these channels. Oh, great. You're doing a great job. And uh, Dr. Rachel, people want to. Yeah, I mean, you can. Yeah, people can find me just about on every social channel. My handle's the same everywhere. It's at Rachel Doc. It's D-O-C like doctor. Rachel Doc Knox. Excellent. Oh, thank you, ladies. Thank you for joining us. Another show. So, so much information. Uh, so much more to talk about. But 
we'll have, maybe we'll come back again. All right. So for my guests and my Canabro, David Jazz, and our Canon Mom Show team, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Canon Mom Show, where we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on the emerging cannabis industry by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. Thank you for following and sharing all the inspiring stories of the women building this new industry so that together we can crush the stigma around cannabis and caregivers. I'm your host, Joyce Gerber. This is the Cannon Mom Show, and we are a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.